This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. In June 1971, President Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs. The war increased the size as well as the presence of federal drug control agencies. Nixon was also responsible for mandatory sentencing for drug offenses and no-knock warrants. One of President Nixon's top aides later said that the planning for the war on drugs began during the 1968 campaign, when Nixon believed he had two enemies, the anti-establishment left and black people. The president couldn't single out these two elements of society, but he could associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and let the media demonize these two groups. The president even made marijuana a Schedule I drug, the most restrictive class of drugs which includes heroin. Marijuana was supposed to be reviewed by a special commission, which recommended decriminalization of it in 1972. The president refused to budge. Between 1973 and 1977, 11 states decriminalized it, and in October 1977, a Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize possession of up to one ounce of marijuana for personal use. However, parents became concerned about marijuana use, and with Ronald Reagan's election as president, the drug war opened up full throttle. During the early days of this war, drug smuggling began to grow and became a highly lucrative business. Cartels such as the Medellin began to function in many areas of the country. Infamous smugglers such as Barry Seal and George Jung became wealthy and notorious. The latter was the subject of the movie Blow, starring Johnny Depp and Penelope Cruz. Small regional airports such as the Mina Intermountain Airport in Arkansas began seeing a higher volume of traffic. With the increased number of drug arrests, President Nixon needed a no-nonsense judge for a newly appointed seat, created by new drug laws. This seat was in the United States District Court for the Western District of Texas. President Nixon nominated John H. Wood Jr. on October 7, 1970. And he was confirmed by the Senate on November 27, 1970. Judge Wood became known as Maximum John due to his habit of giving the maximum sentence to drug offenders. Despite his presence, drug smuggling and violence continued. That drug violence 
would eventually lead to the assassination of Judge Wood himself. Additionally, there were several questionable friendships between attorneys, judges, and criminals. Okay, on to the show. Early in the morning of November 21st, 1978, Assistant U.S. Attorney James Kerr was driving through the upscale Alamo Heights neighborhood in San Antonio, Texas, heading towards the federal courthouse. As he approached Broadway, a van blocked the street. James attempted to drive around the van, but as he did, two men jumped out of the van holding weapons. They aimed towards James's Lincoln Continental and opened fire. The barrage of gunfire was over in seconds, and the two men and their drivers fled the scene. They left without ensuring their target was dead, which was good for James Kerr, who escaped serious harm by ducking behind the dash. The Lincoln Continental of the 20th century was a huge tank-like car, and the 30 caliber slugs and buckshots were lodged in the engine. James was cut and bleeding from the attempt on his life, but was still alive. As it turned out, the van had been stolen the night before from Austin and was located just a short distance from the scene. James Kerr picked out mugshots of several members of the Banditos Motorcycle Club, but no one was ever arrested in connection with his attempted murder. James Kerr was a graduate from Southern Methodist University and had worked for the Justice Department. He even helped draft the 1970 Drug Control Act. He was tough on crime and managed the docket in Del Rio. James also believed the mafia was running rampant in San Antonio and El Paso, citing their presence in some of his cases, such as the case against June Mama June Mendoza. She was charged with selling narcotics to undercover agents, along with her husband. Just a month after the assassination attempt on James Kerr, prominent El Paso attorney Lee Chagra was murdered. Lee was of Lebanese descent and was the oldest of four, three boys and one girl. Lee was known as the biggest drug attorney in El Paso and was also a high-rolling gambler in Las Vegas. He and his younger brother Jimmy were in Vegas so often Caesar's Palace would send a Learjet to pick him up with just five minutes' notice. Lee had been the first in his family to graduate from college, and then graduated fourth in his class from the University of Texas Law School. In the 1960s, racism was still blatantly prevalent across the country, and Lee felt the brunt of it at times. The year he graduated, a major law firm, known for inviting the top six graduates to their annual spring gala, only invited five. Some posited that it was because of his Spanish surname. However, that did not stop Lee, and he went on to form a successful firm with his brother-in-law. In the early 1970s, he began successfully taking on drug cases. However, in 1973, the Golden Touch became tarnished when he was indicted on drug charges in Nashville, Tennessee. The indictment was vague and was later ruled useless by the district judge, who chastised the DEA and other agencies for their part in it. After two years, Lee was cleared of the drug charges, but the damage had been done. 
because of the anxiety and stress, Lee began using cocaine. By the time he began recovering from this cloud over his good name, his younger brother Jimmy started playing on the other side of the law. In 1975, Jimmy began smuggling drugs from Colombia to the U.S. The first trip was into Massachusetts, where they delivered 54,000 pounds of marijuana. It is estimated that Jimmy and his partners received a $5 million payout for this cargo. Over the years, Lee Chagra had formed an odd friendship with Jamie Boyd, a U.S. magistrate. In 1976, after Jimmy Carter was elected president, Lee even supported Jamie's appointment to this role. However, even with this friendship, Jamie was eventually convinced that Lee Chagra was the mastermind behind Jimmy Chagra's smuggling operations. Lee's murder ended any investigations as to his involvement with the smuggling operations. The investigation into Lee's murder was not fast and, at one point, the Chagra family asked Senator Ted Kennedy's office to intervene. However, a tip finally pointed to Lou Esper, the uncle of one of Lee's friends. Lou was one of Lee's cocaine suppliers, but also led a ring of young black soldiers from Fort Bliss in a series of thefts in the area. Lee's murder was supposed to be a burglary, but one of the young men got spooked and shot Lee. With Lee's murder solved, Jimmy and Joe, their youngest brother, could move on. However, Jimmy was soon in trouble again, without his brother Lee to bail him out. In early 1979, he was indicted on drug charges. He was released on bail, with a trial before District Judge John H. Wood set for April. The trial was delayed a few times as motions were filed to ask Judge Wood to recuse himself and for a change of venue. Judge Wood had a volatile relationship with Lee and Joe Chagra, and Jimmy was concerned that would bleed over into his trial. Judge Wood refused to recuse himself, but did delay the trial date and move the trial from Midland to Austin. After the attempt on James Kerr's life, many of the federal court officers had U.S. Marshals assigned to them for protection. Right before Christmas, Judge Wood asked the marshals to stop guarding him. According to his law clerk, Judge Wood said he couldn't do his job properly with them escorting him. One of the judge's former law clerks said that the judge had received death threats throughout his career. On May 29, 1979, Judge Wood was getting ready for work. He was going to follow his wife to a garage and drop her car off. But when they started to leave, they discovered a flat on her car. The Woods changed their plans, and Judge Wood went to his own car, running a little late. As he started to get into his car, he was struck in the back by a high-powered 6mm dum-dum bullet. A dum-dum bullet is one that is designed to expand upon impact for the most damage. Judge Wood died instantly. His wife Catherine heard the shot and went outside to find her husband, lying on the ground. She cradled his head in her lap as she waited for an ambulance. Immediately, the area was cordoned off as a crime scene. A neighbor assisted Catherine in trying to make the judge comfortable. However, it was already too late. During the three-hour autopsy, 
the medical examiner found at least 16 bullet fragments in the judge's body. The bullet struck his spinal cord and severed it, destroyed his aorta, and did major damage to his abdominal organs. Because the judge had been so hard on drug offenders, many people said his court docket for the last eight years would need to be examined to find the killer. Judge Wood was very conservative in sentencing. In his first drug case as a federal judge, he sentenced the defendant to 45 years for three counts of possession of cocaine, 15 years for each charge, which was the maximum he could receive. In the 90 drug cases before his death, 72% of defendants received the maximum, and no one received probation. The assassination of Judge Wood was the first assassination of a federal judge in the 20th century. One FBI agent called it the crime of the century. Support for True Crime Fan Club is brought to you by Incipio. Incipio offers legendary protection for all of your devices from phones to AirPods to tablets. They obsess over their tech to protect yours. Now, if you know me or if you've seen me in public, you know that I am a huge klutz. I drop my phone literally all the time. I bang it into walls, my Apple Watch, I hit into walls, I drop my AirPods. I don't know what it is, but I just end up dropping everything or slamming it into a wall. And that's why I really, really like and appreciate my organic core case. Not only does it protect my phone, but it also protects the planet, which is something I care a lot about. Did you know that every 12 organic core cases reduces one pound of plastic from landfill waste? That is amazing. And organic core clear is the perfect next step to becoming more eco-friendly because we all know that it's the small changes that add up to make a big difference. All organic core clear cases are also wireless charging compatible and there's a lifetime warranty, so they've got you covered. So if you want 20% off and free shipping, use code TCFC at Incipio.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at Incipio.com with code TCFC. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A grand jury was convened on October 20, 1979, to investigate the assassination. Initially, investigators focused on members of the motorcycle club, the Banditos. Many other known high-profile criminals were called to testify before the grand jury, until eventually, Jimmy Chagra became their target. 
In August of that same year, Jimmy Chagra went on trial for his drug charges. The jury found him guilty on several charges of conspiracy to distribute marijuana and cocaine. He remained free on bond while awaiting his September sentencing hearing. On August 21, 1979, Jimmy jumped bond and became a federal fugitive. Judge Sessions, who had replaced Judge Wood, signed a bench warrant for Jimmy's arrest and ordered the $400,000 bond be raised to $3 million. On February 1, 1980, a convicted felon, a man named Charles Harrelson, was arrested in Houston on weapons charges, possession of cocaine, and possession of loaded dice. Three weeks later, Jimmy Chagra was found in Las Vegas, exiting the Tivoli Motel. Federal agents followed him down the strip, finally stopping him. He had $187,000 in cash in a diaper bag on the front seat of his car. He pled guilty to the bail-jumping charges, but remained in jail since he could not pay his new $3 million bond. A month later, Judge Sessions sentenced Jimmy to 30 years without parole on his drug charges, along with a $125,000 fine. But who is Charles Harrelson, and how does he figure into this scenario? Jimmy Shagra had met Charles Harrelson at a casino in Las Vegas, not long after Lee's murder. Charles offered up his services if Jimmy was sentenced to prison. Charles Harrelson had spent five years in prison after being found guilty of a murder for hire. On July 9, 1968, Sam DeGalia was a prominent grain buyer from Hearn, Texas, who went missing. On July 9, 1968, Sam DeGalia, a prominent grain buyer from Hearn, Texas, went missing. Sam had been in the McAllen area with his bookkeeper, Jimmy Horn. Jimmy told police the last time he had seen Sam was in a McAllen cafeteria parking lot. Sam had told Jimmy he was meeting a man who wanted to buy some grain. Jimmy went inside to eat, and when he came back out, Sam's car was still in the parking lot. Sam had graduated from Texas A&M University and was married with four children. On July 12th, the decomposing corpse of Sam DeGalio was found in an isolated pump house outside of McAllen. A billfold was found which aided in identification of Sam. Law enforcement had been reluctant to speculate foul play was involved prior to the discovery of the body, but a friend of Sam's had said he had been fearful when Sam went missing that something had happened to him. The Texas Rangers had joined the search not long after Sam had gone missing. However, there were no arrests until December. In December, law enforcement announced they had made two arrests in the murder of Sam DeGalia, Charles Harrelson and Jerry Watkins. Charles had been arrested in Atlanta in November in connection with another murder, that of Allen Berg. Charles had been arrested in Atlanta in November in connection with another murder, that of Allen Berg. Allen Berg was the son of a prominent carpet salesman in Houston. Allen was a high-rolling gambler who allegedly owed $7,000 to a decorating company, and it was the decorating company who paid Charles to kill Allen. Charles' girlfriend explained this to the police, in the hopes of cashing in on the reward Allen's father had posted for leads. Charles' attorney did his own investigation into Allen's death, 
and discovered a rumor that Allen had floated about the UCLA and University of Houston playoff basketball game. The rumor was that the game was fixed for Houston, but then UCLA won. Lots of money was lost by some high rollers who weren't very happy. Much like Sam DeGallia, Alan Berg went missing for a while before he was found. According to autopsy reports, he was killed on May 28, 1968, but his body was not found for four more months. Investigators were led to his remains by Charles's girlfriend, who said she had lured Alan out of a club in Houston into a car where Charles waited. According to her, they drove to Freeport where the remains were found, and Charles attempted to strangle Alan, but then fired two shots from a 25 into the man's head. Charles' attorney, Percy, was ready for this, however. When the case went to trial, Percy produced two witnesses who testified that at the time of the murder, Charles Harrelson was 100 miles away selling a quarter horse. Charles was acquitted for the murder of Allen Berg. Percy was Charles' attorney in the Sam DeGallia case, too. Allegedly, Charles was hired by Sam's partner and lifelong friend, Pete Scamardo, to kill Sam for the insurance payoff, which allegedly went to Pete. However, at Charles' trial, Percy explained that the bank was the beneficiary for the insurance. He also once again produced witnesses to say Charles had not been in the area. The trial ended in a hung jury. Upon retrial, the witnesses were not available to testify that Charles had not been in the area, and he was sentenced to 15 years for the murder of Sam DeGallia. He had already served several years and, once transferred to Leavenworth, was only there for two years before being released. After Judge Wood's murder, three different grand juries were convened. Thousands of man-hours were spent working on the case with hundreds of people interviewed, including Charles Harrelson and his wife Joanne. Charles was not the subject of the investigation initially, but investigators tracked down the purchase of a rifle a few weeks before the judge's death. The rifle was purchased by a Fay King, a.k.a. Faking, but investigators believe this was a fictitious name and that Joanne Harrelson was the one who purchased the gun. The grand jury began focusing on Charles Harrelson and spoke with several of his known associates. At the same time, they began looking into Jimmy Shagra and his remaining brother, Joe. In July 1980, Charles Harrelson failed to appear in Houston on his cocaine and weapons charges. On August 25, 1980, in El Paso, a shootout occurred at a Howard Johnson's. William Mallow was shot, but then charged with attempted capital murder. Another man was with him, but escaped. Police believe that was Charles Harrelson and that the shooting was a result of a bad drug deal. Just a little over a week later, on September 1, 1980, Texas Department of Public Safety officers responded to calls of a man with a gun in Van Horn, Texas. When they arrived, they found a vehicle on the shoulder of Interstate 10 just outside of Van Horn. They could see a man in the car holding a handgun to his head. Officers backed away but tried to communicate with him. They said he was incoherent and they believed he was on drugs of some kind. The man threatened to shoot himself if he couldn't speak with Virginia Farah. The car he was in belonged to her son, who had been killed in an accident on Memorial Day of 1980. 
The man also identified himself as Charles Harrelson, and officers found that he was wanted for a failure to appear on felony charges. When troopers brought Miss Farah to the car, they discovered Charles had been working for her as a bodyguard. She was unaware of his criminal past. After talking to Miss Farah, Charles Harrelson surrendered to police after midnight on September 2, 1980. Officers later commended Miss Farah, saying she saved Charles's life, but also potentially the lives of law enforcement. Prosecutors likened Charles Harrelson to the most infamous of Texas outlaws and sought a no-bail order. Scattered in the road where the standoff had occurred, investigators found torn-up bits of paper. They pieced these pieces back together and found several notes. One read, I'm sorry, not for me, but for the pain I've caused others, both those who loved me and who love the people I killed. But I've never killed a person who was undeserving of it. I wish to be cremated with absolutely no religious services. My ashes should be spread over the John H. Wood Jr. Courthouse in San Antonio. Another read, Please excuse my handwriting, but I am high on cocaine, as usual. I, Charles V. Harrelson, killed John H. Wood Jr. acting solely on my own. There was another note that referenced zero population growth, which was allegedly a joke about his recent vasectomy. With Charles Harrelson and Jimmy Chagra safely behind bars, federal investigators began looking for connections between the pair. There were some minor connections. Jimmy knew Joanne Harrelson when she was Joanne Starr, and the two men had some friends in the gambling arena in common. But the biggest and most damning connection was Joe Shagra, Jimmy's younger brother. Joe temporarily represented Charles Harrelson and his drug and weapons charges. However, much of that changed once Jimmy was in Leavenworth himself. One of the first people he had met with when arriving at the facility was Jerry Ray James. Jerry had been a small-time criminal for decades and had once graced the FBI's top 10 most wanted list for being the head of Austin's organized crime. In 1978, Jerry had been convicted in New Mexico for conspiracy to commit armed robbery and accessory to armed robbery. He was given two life sentences as a habitual offender. Jerry Ray James had arrived in Leavenworth after a horrific riot in the New Mexico penitentiary. Jerry was allegedly one of the ringleaders of the riot. Jerry and Jimmy became quick friends, and Jerry asked for a transfer into Jimmy's cell block. There, he told Jimmy about his role in the New Mexico riot. Jerry said he had broken into the controller's safe and found the list of the prison's confidential informants. Jerry said he then tracked down and personally killed nine of these individuals. These were no ordinary murders. These were torture killings. Inmates had genitals removed, axe handles inserted into body parts, and decapitations. Jerry and Jimmy spoke of Charles Harrelson. Jerry was trying to place him from a previous stint in Leavenworth, but couldn't. He asked Jimmy if Charles had admitted to the murder of Judge Wood, and Jimmy said he had left a note in the motel in Van Horn. Jerry had many questions about this case, and Jimmy filled his ears full of details. There was a good reason for these questions. 
Jerry was working with the government and recording conversations between him and Jimmy Chagra. He also had a recorder set up so he could record Jimmy's jail cell, which was right next to his. Jimmy's visits with his family were recorded, and even though his brother Joe was acting as his attorney, these visits were also recorded. The judge ruled that since they were in prison, Jimmy could not have a reasonable expectation for privacy. In a very controversial move, Jerry Ray James was freed from his life sentences, given a large sum of money, and placed into witness protection. Some of the investigators and prosecutors who had worked to put Jerry Ray James behind bars were shocked that he had been released, particularly given his involvement in the prison riot. Officers soon honed in on Joe, executing a search warrant on his house in February 1981. Investigators found a map which reportedly showed the location of the gun used to slay Judge Wood. When the area was searched, they found nothing. But then, two residents of the area came forward with a gun stock they found. However, the clerk of the store where the rifle was reportedly sold testified that the stock could have belonged to a thousand different guns. The court cases against the Harrelsons and the Chagras moved forward. Judge Sessions presided over the trials of each. Judge Sessions had replaced Judge Wood and had been a pallbearer at the funeral, as well as delivered a eulogy. The defendants requested that Judge Sessions recuse himself, but he refused. Judge Sessions remained a controversial figure on the national stage after he was appointed as director of the FBI by President Ronald Reagan. He was in charge of the FBI during the disastrous Ruby Ridge standoff, where Randy Weaver's unarmed wife Vicky was shot by an agent. Judge Sessions also led the FBI during the Branch Davidian standoff. Joe Chagra agreed to testify against Charles Harrelson, Joanne Harrelson, and Jimmy's wife, Liz. He refused to testify against his brother. He was granted a plea bargain where he received 10 years for conspiracy after the fact and obstruction of justice. Many individuals familiar with the case believed at the time that Joe made up some of his testimony to receive a reduced sentence. Early in the investigation, Joe had taken a polygraph exam and passed it entirely, including questions about Judge Wood's murder and if he had knowledge of it. Teresa Starr testified against her mother and stepfather Charles in their trials. She had originally refused to testify and had been held in contempt for several weeks before changing her mind. She testified that she had picked up the cash Jimmy Shagra owed Charles for the hit. The other witnesses against Charles Harrelson had hypnosis to assist in their testimony. Handwriting analysis was also used. During the course of his trial, Charles alleged that Judge Wood was killed by the CIA because he was cutting into their own federally funded drug operations. These accusations were made before details of Colombian and U.S. drug operations were ever made public. Charles and Joe Harrelson were tried in the James H. Wood Courthouse, which was a point of appeal after their convictions. Charles was found guilty of murder and conspiracy and sentenced to two life sentences. After an attempted prison break in Georgia, Charles was sent to a maximum security prison in Florence, Colorado, which also housed the Unabomber and Timothy McVeigh. 
Joe Shagro was out of prison in six and a half years. When he was 50 years old, he perished in a vehicle fatality that also killed his two passengers. Jimmy Shagro was released from prison in 2003 for health reasons. He died in 2009 from cancer. Charles Harrelson, father of award-winning actor Woody Harrelson, died in prison in 2008 of a heart attack. Judge Wood is still revered by some, but others will remember him as being difficult and unnecessarily hard on drug offenses. Still, other attorneys in Texas believe Judge Sessions should have recused himself in the trial and believe Charles Harrelson did not get the fair trial he was allowed. Woody Harrelson and his brothers fought to have their father's name cleared, but their attempts were unsuccessful. Judge Sessions died in 2020 at age 90. He and his wife Alice, after 65 years of marriage, filed for a divorce in 2019. Articles written about Judge Sessions focus on his career as the FBI director, who was fired by Bill Clinton after the Branch Davidian incident. But other articles mention his abuses of powers, such as using federally funded planes to travel, allowing his wife Alice unfettered access to the Pentagon, and using federal funds to build a fence. Some allege that after he was fired by President Clinton, he became the attorney for a Russian mafia kingpin. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram if they'll ever let me back in my account at True Crime Fan Club Pod, or follow me at Lainey Hobbs VO. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.